0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. As always, thank you so much for subscribing. Thank you for sharing, um, you know, the episodes. Thank you so much for just reaching out and telling us who you want to have on the show or giving us feedback. It's been a blessing these last couple of years at The Ringer and Spotify, man. It's been so dope. So thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm interviewing my brother. And, when I you know, a lot of times I say my brother and sometimes I know him, sometimes I don't really. But I will tell you, this is somebody who I can truly call my brother, Mayor Randall Woodfin uh, of Birmingham, fresh off his successful reelection campaign. But before I get to Mayor Woodfin, I wanted to have a more solemn moment. I wanted to talk about Afghanistan and the unfolding drama in Kabul and remember the lives lost in this past Thursday, suicide bombing at the Kabul airport. In case you missed it this past Thursday, more than 100 people were killed, including at least 13 U.S. service members and 90 Afghans, when a suicide bomber exploded near crowds trying to enter the Kabul airport. This was followed by a gun assault and another bombing at a nearby hotel. All in, this was the deadliest day in Afghanistan for Americans since 2011. More attacks are likely as the U.S. continues to withdraw. There's no way to end a war perfectly. I'm sure that if the administration had a chance to do this all over again, they'd probably do some things differently. But before we further politicize this withdrawal, I hope we take a moment to at least acknowledge the lives lost. Marine Corps Lance Corporal David Lee Espinoza, Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole G. Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren T. Hoover. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Knauss. Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Riley J. McCullum, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Dylan R. Marola, Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Kareem M. Nakui, Marine Corps Sergeant Johanny Rosario Pacharda, Marine Corps Corporal Humberto Sanchez, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Jared Schmitz. Navy Hospitalman Maxton Soviak, Marine Corps Corporal Deegan Page. We say your names, we honor your sacrifice, and we pray for you and your families. Let's never forget that before we talk about the impact that this has on President Biden's legacy or the midterms or any other bullshit we want to talk about, we can't lose sight of the 13 Americans and these 13 families and the hundreds of families and friends who love them. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with... What's up, my brother Randall Woofin? How you feeling, man?
1: Good to be with you, man. I swear it is, man. I'm always, you know, I, I follow you, I watch you, man. The energy you put out to our, our country, man, and just always being positive, brother. Appreciate you,
0: man. No, I appreciate you, my brother. People don't know how far back we go, man. We go back yeah. to
1: we go back, we go to, back, back to Westview. Westview. Yeah, eight thirty Westview <laughs> Drive. You had the heavy you had the heavyweight bell around you. Around your waist. That's right, man. I thought my waist was small. But that, yeah.
0: <laughs> man, we go back to to Dawu and Rodriguez Murray. We go back to Joe Carlo. Shout out to everybody who came through Morehouse. And everybody's doing great things, man, rallying around you. How does it feel now to be a mayor re-elect for the great city of Birmingham, Alabama?
1: Man, it's the best. I you know I eat humble pie all the time. I like to remind people humble pie tastes good. But this, this one is the best taste. It's, it feels good. You know, I'm grateful to the citizens of Birmingham. I won, not only with a mandate, but we've look, taken the last few days to look at the numbers. Man, we won every single
0: precinct in the entire city. Now, I don't and, know if that's ever been done before, unless you run out of pose. Yeah. yeah,
1: I don't know if I had, it was eight people in my race. And the lowest Man. precinct we won was 49%. And so every demographic, young, old, older, black, white, male, female, Shit. we, we, did, we did something. That says, the citizens say, not only like the direction we're taking the city in, but they want us to keep going and they want us to lead. So,
0: and I mean, this is this is a question I got down the road, but you did all of that through COVID crime spikes that are happening all in all these urban areas. You know, uh, a very hot summer, figuratively and, and literally, but figuratively with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, how were you able to, to, I I tell folk that there are two things. And one, i never be nobody's mayor because it's the most thankless. And also, it's the most difficult job in America. So how were you able to pull that off, man?
1: You know, four years ago, we knocked on over 50,000 doors. And I told the team a long time ago, whatever we did to get to the dance, you should at a minimum do the same thing to remain on the dance floor. So for me, I was like, can we a minimum do 50? Well, by election day, we eclipsed 80,000 doors, not Mm. this time. In addition to that, those issues you said about spiking homicide, gun violence, the economic recession, coronavirus. You know, um, King told us about how leadership is defined. He spoke about, especially in times of controversy. So for us, all these controversies at the exact same time, I told the team, you have two options. Don't say nothing and hope it goes away or lead from the front and talk about it every day. And so the folk know, even if you can't control it, they know you genuinely care and you're trying to do everything you can to solve it. So we mm-hmm. literally propose a question to the community. Gun violence is increasing. Do you feel the mayor's doing everything he can to decrease it? Even if we're taking over 5,000 illegal guns off the street over a three year period, you can get an illegal gun faster than you can get crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're doing everything we can around gun violence. Literally everything we can.
0: Come that's a hell in, of a quote. Me. You can get an illegal gun faster. You can get crack.
1: Come on, man. It's real. We, there is all this pressure right now on mayors across the nation to do something about gun violence. But you don't have we don't have the help from a state that controls some form of gun laws and the federal government that controls all guns. What do you want mayors to do if we don't get the support we need from the state and federal government? OK, that, let me tell you what that's equivalent to. The coronavirus hits, and you got a, the prior president literally at war with urban cores across the nation yep. and urban mayors, and we did not get the help we needed. And so the recession hit the cities hard, because while you had the federal government supporting everybody else, he didn't give direct support to cities. Hmm.
0: So look, man, let's back up just a little bit because everybody knows you are the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, but they don't know from whence you've come. We talked briefly about Morehouse, but I just want to start at the beginning. From school board to mayor, um, you spent some time practicing law as well. Walk us through the arc of your career from Morehouse to the mayor's office. So
1: it's actually quite easy, man. You know, but if you don't mind, I'll go back a little bit more. I got my first job at age fifteen. I bagged groceries. Mm. Um, and Dale Smith hired me. And he taught me the importance of helping people in customer service. But my great grandmother who lived with us as she was hundred years old, taught us the importance of helping people as well. And because she was blind from diabetes, man, I spent every day of my life prior to going to Morehouse, assisting, helping my great grandmother. So I come from, you know, pouring into me, help, 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 help others. Morehouse, you get to Morehouse, and Morehouse literally just enhances that. I, you, I like Correct. to remind people, Morehouse is a, a three-way intersection of academic rigor, leadership, and community service. You know how they told us, oh, not only look to your left or your right, but when you leave Morehouse, you got to go, you got to catch down your bucket and give back.
0: Yep. Doesn't I always tell folks they, they put a crown above our head for us to grow into.
1: Right. It doesn't matter if it's D.C., Capitol Hill, New York, Wall Street or in my lane, you know, public service, organizing. So when I finished Morehouse, I literally packed my stuff up, and I didn't go straight into some graduate program. I came and knocked on the door of the mayor's office at the time. He gave me an opportunity. And I literally been around municipal government right out of Morehouse since age of, what, 20,
0: 22.
1: Yep. Took a gap year. I went to law school, um, but I still did some work while I was in law school full-time, district attorney's office. City Council, etc. So I stayed. Talk to me building. about
0: talk to me about that 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 time practicing law, that District Attorney. What did you learn from that? Because I've always told yeah. people, I didn't do it, but that that I don't have regrets. But if I had an opportunity when I was younger, you know, getting that experience in either a public defender's office or a District Attorney's office serves you well. You see the world from a different perspective.
1: So I spent eight years as a prosecutor, and I will tell anybody the reason why we need more black prosecutors. In America, whether it's at the municipal level, county level or state level or federal level. is because you have discretionary power to really make a difference and help. people. Mm-hmm. You can actually help not just a victim. You can help the defendant. Um, and every defendant is not the same. Every case is not the same. All cases don't have victims. And so with some of these laws that exist, you have some people that are 180 of me and are abusive with their discretionary power and they use their form of power as a prosecutor to hurt people. And so I use it to help people. And to this day, I'll never forget, man. It it happens with all the time, I swear to you. People walk up to me and it was like, oh, you were my lawyer. You defended me. But it was, I never defended them. I was the prosecutor the entire time. It was how I interacted with them. It was the service I provided to them. It was the way I engaged them even if they pled guilty or were found guilty, still how I treated people and the deals I made and what I offered. Most people either actually pled guilty or were found guilty, but I used that discretion um, to do, uh, you know, restorative justice, a lot of restorative justice. I think that was the form of empowerment I had uh, to assist people who ran ran into trouble with the law. And I think people should know that we need criminal defense lawyers that are black males and black females. But if you get on the other side, you get that experience and you use your discretionary power rate, right, then you can really be in power when you become a criminal defense attorney.
0: Yeah. And I I always tell folks prosecutors are the most important people in the courtroom, not the judge, not the bailiff, not your lawyer. It's the prosecutor. They are the most powerful person in there.
1: Yep. So they make the recommendation to the judge.
0: That's right. <laughs> and they they there's only but so much a criminal defense attorney can do. Um right. So, you know, we talked about Morehouse a little bit. We're both former SGA presidents. Is there anything about that experience you thought that prepared you for the struggles of this past year and the leadership that you've displayed? I mean, you're one of the one of the notable alums now. That's pretty cool to see your name with Julian Bond and and the many others who've come before.
1: Just like you, brother. And I think, you know, let's let's be very clear about this. Four years ago, wasn't the first time I knocked on doors to ask people to support me. Eight years ago when I ran for the school board, it wasn't the first time I asked people to support me, nor 12 years ago in 2009, the first time I ran for elected office in my hometown. First time I ran I, I ran for um, office was corresponding secretary, uh-huh. the student government association at Morehouse College. I knocked on doors at Graves Hall, White, and everywhere else in between. LL, LLC. LLC, DuBois, everybody, I knocked on <laughs> all of them. Um, yeah. I did the same thing when I ran for SGA president. And so when I became SGA president, here's what I realized. It's the number one sport at at Morehouse College. That's what I tell people. Student Government Association is, is number one sport. I see your shirt, you got your SEC football shirt on South Carolina. And I imagine the quarterback is a pretty big deal there. Um, and being SGA president is, is the quarterback uh, of the ultimate sport at Morehouse. And you, you have competing interests, you got issues, And even though that's the one year, that's a lot of stuff to learn. And so I took a lot of those lessons on how to interact with different constituency groups and different issues and different wants and different needs, competing, all these competing interests. And really learn to communicate with every group and try to solve everybody's
0: problem, even though everybody got different problems. (laughs) That's a true statement. Let's fast forward to to what happened last week on Tuesday and your reelection with 64 percent of the vote. I want to talk about the campaigning that you were able to do during COVID. Like, what was your? I mean, not just the public health and economic aspect from a policy, but just the campaign nuts and bolts. How did your campaign change during COVID without being able to have you know all of the kind of in-home events and barbecues and fresh fries and all of these things? How, how did the campaign change and, and the policy change?
1: So um, I will go for example, fundraising still important. Well, four years ago, I was An upstart running uphill against an entrenched incumbent. And I couldn't fundraise in my own hometown. So I literally flew or drove to cities across the nation. Mm -hmm. Philly, New York, D.C., Atlanta, Nashville, Memphis, Houston, St. Louis, and so many other cities I didn't even name to fundraise. But you couldn't fly across the the, the nation this time in the middle of coronavirus. And so we did a, a lot of events like online or Zoom fundraisers we sent a lot of people to the website. I call them and text them the link to give directly online in their own home um, instead of write, writing a check at an event. And So that was a difference. Related to Doors, which is still our campaign's identity, uh, will always be my, anytime I ever run for office, my identity is going to be rooted in my field. Feel was different because I remember when we first started, I told the team, whether it's too cold or too hot, you have to keep the mask on or at a minimum when you knock on the door, keep it on and then back, back away, give a person enough feet uh, distance. And then if there's enough feet, you can take off if they can't hear you when you talk to them. But collecting information at doors in the middle of COVID where a person may not come to the door, how to interact with that person when they come to the door. Those are two, two of the biggest things, adjusting fundraising ideas as well as our field operation. Um, but a lot of stuff we did had to be driven online as far as how we communicated with our citizens the warranty people messes up everybody, man. Folks don't take calls no more, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, we had a, we went and them. Text, and,
0: and them text messages, man, the best thing Apple ever did was kind of divide them text messages. My unknown yeah. t- yes. text messages are just filled with people. You know, we got a Morehouse brother running for mayor of Cleveland. Right. And I got a 216 call and they were like, hey, this is Bashir. And I was like, what's up, man? And then it was an auto call. I was like, man, this is some bullshit, man. I thought he was calling it, calling. <laughs>
1: Yeah, man. So so just, you know, it's 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 text and calls are hard. Emails, you know, you may get a 12, 16 percent open rate. So you still got to do butter.
0: Yeah, I know. You, nothing like that, that. People don't know. The thing is, it's tough out there. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this question real quick, because we talked about it briefly and you had a very quotable, very, very quotable line about guns. But talk about crime. Because violent crime is up everywhere and you have the calls for reform. Um, You are very it's funny because I want to follow this up with a question about somebody we both supported in Cleveland, actually. But you have these calls for reform, defund the police, abolition. I talked to to DeRay McKesson about it. I'm not, you know, DeRay and I don't. He's an abolition guy. I am a you know, we don't want to defund the police. We want better police type guy you know, kind of figuring out where we are in this whole scenario. You seem to be more pragmatic. You're a pragmatic progressive. I'm just labeling you myself. But mm-hmm. how do you balance those calls for reform with the fact that police do beat our ass now and we're able to see it on tape a lot more than we've seen it before? And the fact that my mama and your mama want to feel safe at home and they want police. I mean, how do you how do you balance that? Because at the end of the day, that's tough as hell. It
1: is. So I told I told the team that pragmatism is going to always win the day. You can't be extreme in municipal government because you have to govern. So what that means is simple as I can say, brother, you got to walk and chew your gum at the same time. We can do police reform measures and also police our community and keep people safe. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can do both. And here's how. Because we've done this. I'm about to roll you through how we did it. First of all, when you talk about violent crime, Birmingham is actually isolated to gun violence slash homicides. So what I tell people, one victim of any crime is too many. But we need to remember they're victims of robbery. They're victims of assault. They're victims of, of rape. They're victims of burglary. They're victims of theft and other forms of victims of property crimes. Well, in Birmingham, Alabama, we got every crime category down. Rapes, robberies, assaults, thefts, burglaries, et cetera, with the exception of homicides. And it's not up some extreme measure, but it is up on par with pretty much all of Americans' urban cores where in all these cities it's increased. And it doesn't matter how many guns we've taken off the street, Two people who still know each other, they decide to do what they're gonna do in their home, or wherever they are, they personally know each other. Uh, We've been trying to deal with that in a long-term plan from a prevention standpoint by addressing and investing conflict resolution. At the exact same time, I want to speak to this defund police conversation because every police department is not created the same. Amen. Our police department is literally almost the same size and numbers of police officers as Minneapolis. But their budget hovered around, I think, $150 million, and ours was only $90 million, but the same number of officers. So they may be literal when they say defund the police and take some of those resources from the police department and put them into other areas of social services in the community. But our police department budget, 94% of it is personnel. So unless you actually want me to fire police officers, we can't defund the police. And big mama and mama and grandmama and all of these other people want police presence.
0: And so going to. I mean, not, shit, they want it and need it.
1: And we're not going to decrease our police footprint because it's not at the level it needs to be anyway. But walking to gum means you can do police reform and you can also support social services and you can also support enforcement and prevention measures at the exact same time. So we did, we kicked off a civilian review board. We banned uh, chokeholds. We banned no-knock warrants. Um, At the exact same time, we are aggressive in police recruitment because we need more officers. We are training them, better training as well, um, as well as doing prevention measures and reentry measures to support those so they don't commit the same thing and investing in our youngest generation. You can do all of that, man. You can. You can do enforcement and prevention measures. You can do accountability measures and also keep a presence for your community to be safe. As a mayor, you should not choose. It should not be or. It should be and.
0: You know, that's that's profound. And that's that's called governing. And that's called being a practical and pragmatic progressive. You supported somebody who I supported as well. She didn't make it over the hump. But Nina Turner. And it's funny because I want you to talk about the nuance and the ability for people to be nuanced. Right. Um, we supported Nina Turner. You were a campaign chair for Hillary Clinton. You got endorsed by Bernie Sanders and our revolution. And then you just got endorsed by Joe Biden and supported Nina Turner. So like for me, that should make perfect sense. That sounds like somebody who knows what they want. Somebody who understands politics Somebody who believes in relationships, which you and I learned at Morehouse is the most valuable political currency you can have. There's nothing more valuable in this world in relationships. That's, That's why it. you have to treat you got to treat people with the same respect that you want on the way up or way down. Because we gonna come, we all come down every now and then and have to fight our way back up. So talk about that nuance in your politics.
1: The nuance is simple. People can disagree on policies, but a friend is a friend. Yeah. Nina Turner disagrees with some of my policies. And I'm pretty sure I don't align with all of Nina policies, but she is my friend. And so I'm going to support my friend. I am a Democrat. I am not a socialist. And I'm comfortable with that. And what I found even in my own hometown, some socialists are not comfortable with me being a Democrat. But I have never campaigned or governed on being a socialist. And that is okay. They're not my enemy. I don't want them to be my enemy. I'm okay with actually, Morales literally teaches us how to engage people who don't believe the same thing you do, who don't have the same opinions you do, who don't have the same thoughts you do. That doesn't mean you have to go to war with them or they're the devil or they're evil or you can't talk to them because they're more left of you or more center of you than you are. That's crazy to me Mm -hmm. that, oh, this person is the worst person in the world because. They don't align in all the policies I want or all the ideas that I want. Well, last time I checked, the state of Alabama, as a mayor, I run nonpartisan and I govern as a progressive. In a state that literally tries to hamstring every single decision I make. Who the hell got time to fight people in the same camp? I don't. So it's simple. Friendship is always first. We are adults. Hell, you don't even agree with your wife on everything. So what makes people think
0: you're you're
1: going to always agree with a person in the same political party? You're not. But damn, that don't mean we got to go to war or divorce each other or or some cold war or fight each other or Twitter thumbs. Man, all of that is reckless. The other party is marching to one beat and their drum major favorite word is no but they get in line. And I'm not asking people to compromise their beliefs. I'm not asking you to choose one or the other. I'm just saying from a situational awareness standpoint, there is no world where everyone is going to agree with you. Mm -hmm. But I am a trained lawyer and I grew up in a household that were nevertheless eight people and I'm a middle child. So compromise is actually a good word it's a good word.
0: You sound like me, and I appreciate that. Got a couple more questions because you've got to get out of here to actually run a city. That's important. But, you know, talk about what your priorities are for the next four years. And then talk about the relationships you have with other mayors. I think about the Deep South and how talented our, you know, cadre of mayors are, Black mayors, Vi Laos in the city where I sit today, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. You have people like uh, Chokwe Lumumba in Jackson. You have my good friend, who's the mayor of Shreveport, the mayor of New Orleans, the mayor of Little Rock. Um, So you have these black mayors. I know I might be missing somebody out there, but you have these black mayors. Talk about, you know, how you guys communicate, the bonds you all have, and what you look forward to over the next four years. Let me tell
1: you, I'm going to start there first. It's real, man. The bond is real, genuine rapport, genuine friendship. Let me tell you how genuine it is. I just came off an election where 72 hours out before election day, Mayor Adrian Perkins of Shreveport, Louisiana, as well as Chokwe Lumumba, Mayor Jackson, Mississippi, flew and drove into Birmingham and literally knocked on doors with me. On election day, Frank Scott, the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, again, flew in, helped knock doors on me, went to precincts with me. These guys are busy running their own cities, have their own families. They paused on what they were doing to come into Birmingham. They couldn't cast a vote, and they don't live here, but they believe in the, me so much, and I believe in them so much. We supported each other on one of our most important days, which is election day. That's real, bruh. I've never been a part of a mayor group, but that's real. Now you got several groups. You have, and I, um, I'm an honorary member now. But there was a under forty club of mayors. This city of Shreveport, Louisiana, Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, Richmond, Virginia, Saint Paul, uh, Minnesota. And then formerly Stockton, in California. All of us were um, young brothers under 40. Oh, I'm, I'm tripping. But um, what, what is it in Missouri? Not St. not saying, oh, what's the other city? Kansas City. Kansas City, I'm tripping. That brother's under 40 as well. Oh, he's under 40? Um, yeah. Oh, he's right at 40.
0: And now you got, I mean, Tashar is like right at 40, but I ain't going to guess yeah. Tashar's age on this show. But Tashar, yeah, shout but, out to show.
1: But Tashar is a, is a great setup for my second point. Cesar Jones of uh, St. Louis. You have the mayor of New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Atlanta, Charlotte, D.C., Chicago, Tacoma, Washington, Compton, California, San Francisco. These are all black women.
0: Shout out to Muriel Bowser. Shout out to Muriel Bowser yeah. in Washington, D.C., doing a great job, threading many of the same lines you are.
1: These are big cities. All right. These aren't mid-sized cities I just named, with probably the exception of Bad Roots. These are either the capital cities or big cities across the nation. And strong black women lead these cities. And so when you have when you are in the middle of the coronavirus and you don't have the federal support you need, you don't have the state support you need and they politicize saving lives. Then as black mayors, what we started doing is texting each other and calling each other. And emailing each other and literally communicating best practices around how do we save our small businesses but at the exact same time strike the balance of saving lives locally. When you in the middle of an economic recession and literally you don't have the help of federal resources and the state got this pot of money but they're not sending it directly to cities, you got to get creative with your own local economy and, and public-private partnerships to fold loans to your small businesses to keep them open. We bounce that off each other. Communication to the public around the coronavirus, we bounce that off each other. The unrest in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we bounce ideas on how to keep our city safe from each other. And that's a real bond, bro.
0: Last question for you, man. I know you just won re-election. 2025 ain't nowhere to be found. Tell me your dream job that's not mayor of Birmingham.
1: I don't know. President of a university or college,
0: maybe. Shit, it sounded like you said husband. I thought I heard husband. That shit. My, my, my mic must be. My my earphones must be messed
1: up. I, I said president of a college <laughs> and university.
0: Oh,
1: you said
0: he to, to be a
1: husband. To be a to husband, yeah. To have a wife yeah. and children. Yeah. yeah. To be a husband and have a wife and children. Yeah, add that in there too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm getting older. <laughs> it's time.
0: It's time, my brother, man. Thank you so much, time, Mayor man, Randall Wolf. Had, had your
1: boy out here dancing in the streets and stuff.
0: Man, that's what you need to be doing man, out there, man. The Magic City Classic. <laughs> man, are we having a Magic City Classic this year? What are we doing?
1: We are having the Magic City. We're having an 80th Magic City Classic this year. Everybody, listen to this podcast. Get to Birmingham the last weekend of October of this year. Let me set it up for y'all come have some fun.
0: Man, I'm with it, man. I love you, my brother. Anything I can ever do for you, man, from giving you a kidney, part of my liver, To just chopping it up and drinking liquor with you, man. I'm always there for you, man. Let me know.
1: Let's go, brother. Keep it brown, though. Brown liquor. I appreciate you, brother.
0: I got you, man. Be easy. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about the Jeopardy controversy. I've been itching to talk about this for a couple of weeks. But we added another twist this past week when newly named Jeopardy host Mike Richards announced his resignation only nine days after he was announced the new host of Jeopardy. What did him in was revelations of offensive and sexist comments he made on a podcast several years ago. Now, had they just hired Lavar Burton or my girl Laura Coates, who Trebek said he wanted to hire in the first place, we wouldn't have had these problems. Because between Richard, who now had to step down, and the other alternative is Mayim Biliak, Bialik. Bialik. I've murdered her name, and I apologize, but she has a questionable record of comments around vaccines and has said this wild shit about c-sections quote unquote there are those among us who believe that if the baby can't survive a home labor it is okay for it to pass peacefully i do not subscribe to this but i know that some feel that if a baby can't make it through birth it is not favored evolutionarily that's some wild shit Now I don't know how a franchise like Jeopardy's that's this successful can fuck this up this badly on succession planning or how you hire people who said this much dumb shit publicly but I know they had a beloved host that had none of this baggage and they decided not to go with him because his ratings weren't up to par though his auditions, talking about LeVar Burton here were doing a slot where Jeopardy competed with the fucking Olympics. (sighs) So I don't feel bad for Jeopardy and like silly on Color Purple until they do, right by my man Levar Burton or Laura Croats, things just might not work out for them. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys all on Thursday.